Okay, welcome to the Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast Series. And um, I will be uh, interviewing, or more like uh, conversing, with a dear colleague, um, a, a renowned Bangladeshi or Bengali scholar on migration, statelessness, and uh, atrocities, uh, Professor C. Um, R. Abra, uh, who's also a columnist for their uh, leading English newspaper out of Dhaka called the Daily Star. Uh, Professor Abra uh, has been a passionate advocate uh, standing with the um, wretched of the earth, to borrow Franz Fanon's term, uh, you know, fighting for the rights of uh, Udus-speaking uh, um, the Bengali people uh, that have been, uh, you know, subject to uh, discriminations and even state persecution in their own birthplace of Bangladesh. And needless to say, uh, Professor Abra is uh, well known among um, the millions of Rohingyas around the world and human rights activists. And he is also uh, one of the founding of, in fact, um, a co-founder and chair of Odika. It's a national human rights watchdog, uh, Odika meaning rights. And uh, he's also the co-founder and executive director of uh, uh, the uh, research on refugees and migratory movement. And he's also the publisher for the first um, you know, collection of genocide essays that my, uh, my wife and research colleague Natalie and I uh, wrote together. And it's a very, very uh, um, uh, great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor uh, Abra. Um, can I kick off the conversation with one you know, simple question? Uh, you have been noted for your advocacy and research for uh, Rohingya refugees, and uh, now estimated to be about one million in your own country of Bangladesh. Uh, you have been, uh, you know, constructively critical of Bangladeshi government policies. Um, can you tell the audiences um, when your concern and interest um, regarding Rohingya uh, began? Uh, that would be a good way to go into other areas of research beyond Rohingya? We all know that from in 1978, there was a big influx of Rohingya from Arakan. Uh, later also in 1991, 92, we have seen you know, more Rohingyas come in large number. Uh, it was around that time, my wife and I, we came back from Australia having finished our higher degrees. Uh, and then we were settling down here. And it, as a student of international relations, I thought, you know, maybe uh, this is an issue that I can relate to. Uh, there's, there's this rights element to it, new movement of people, international relations. So it's somewhat, you know, blended into my own academic sort of, uh, uh, what you call interest, uh, research, academic research interest, as well as human rights activism that I was part and parcel of from my student days. Um, so when I started working on that, I found there is very little institutional memory, you know, within the uh, research institutes in Bangladesh, and also I would say even the UN system in Dhaka. Uh, maybe they have archives in Geneva. I didn't have the opportunity to visit that, those archives, 
uh, but certainly there's hardly any memory anywhere. And as things stand here, uh, the government agencies are essentially no-go areas for academics. You know, I don't know what they have, if they have at all anything there of, of that period, but even research institutes did not have anything. So that in a way put, put me uh, in the say that, okay, uh, let's do a bit, bit more uh, on this. And I wrote one of the first papers uh, on voluntary repatriation. It was uh, commissioned by UNHCR, uh, but certainly, the, and, and there, uh, while I was doing that, I came across you know, the wrongs that have been committed. Uh, and uh, there was not as much literature as we can access now, courtesy you and many others who have been very active in this. Um, so uh, in a way, my, my purpose was to build up a case that this people, you know, have really, you know, are, are asylum seeker in this country. Uh, unfortunately, since 1992 onwards, we know that Bangladesh government had refused to acknowledge them as refugees. There is no reason assigned, you know, why they did so. And I would go to the extent of suggesting that I, I don't think even HCR did its fair bit to insist on access to this group of people who, who came in post-92. And, it, you know, small numbers, small batches, uh, but, you know, blended in into Cox's Bazar, Ukia sort of Technaf region, but outside of any protection mechanism. So they were not recognized as refugees. They are exploited uh, by employers, you know, and there were many, many instances of horrendous stories that we have learned during the course of our research uh, and, and subsequent activism. And hardly there was any, any organization and um, any NGO involvement of, of Bangladesh, you know, with regard to this, even human rights organizations. For some reason, they completely abdicated, you know, as they did with the, with the Bihari, you know, so-called stateless people at the time, you know, and also the Rohingyas, as if it's not our uh, case to point. And I must say one international organization, you know, that Medicines of Frontier, Holland, I think that was, that really blew the whistle a few times and put Bangladesh government in a rather difficult situation when rights violation was taking place. The bottom line is, I don't think people acknowledge the fact, even in the UN system and donor agencies, and let alone Bangladesh government, that these people were exactly, they're, they're the, vic the same victims as they had, they were prior to 1991, 92, and even during 1978. So the things have not changed. The only thing that had changed that these people were coming in small numbers, small batches, because by the time Burma became very smart, you know, they were not sending people with bullet and bayonet wounds. What they did, they were creating condition in, 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 in Arakan state, you know, whereby these people life become untenable, forced labor and whole range of things that you, are, you and I are pretty well versed. You know, the created condition, that's a low intensity sort of war against the Rohingya, the genocide, you know, perfectly orchestrated. Uh, it was not media savvy. People were not coming with, you know, bullet and bayonet wounds. So as a result, you know, international media did not pick up. And I personally went to a pretty high person, persons in the establishment here and said, these, you know, uh, take this to agencies, go to OIC, discuss this with bilateral forums, because, and at least commission a formal study to look into the cases why they are coming back. You know, my own humble understanding of international refugee law inform, I mean, impels me to believe that they are refugees. And you know, the response was very, pretty high up in the system. 
The response was, we are dealing with the residual caseload, i.e. 23,000 to 32,000, those who are in the camps, you know, and uh, formal refugees. And once we finish this deliberation, then we will take this up. Otherwise, it's going to muddle up the whole negotiations. So that was pretty wrong way of dealing with this. Uh, and Burma, you know, as we all know, continued to do that until, and when in 19, uh, 2017, the final, you know, uh, uh, push, you know, that, 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 that came. So that's right. the reality. The, and I would go on to say just one more thing. I don't think that we can provide with any evidence to suggest that as the, as the country, which has been hosting such a large number of people who are fleeing persecution, the, the survivors of genocide, you know, uh, that we, we, we sort of alerted the international community as, as we should have. You know, neither the OIC, UN General Assembly, not even in UNHCR's, you know, executive committee meetings, you know, that I don't think Bangladesh has ever taken this up, that, okay, we are having this problem. So that, and, and to an extent, even system, you know, dance to the tune of Bangladesh Yeah, now, let, me, let me just pick up on the fact that uh, this is a protracted, and, and uh, uh, you know, chronically recurring, uh, you know, humanitarian side effect uh, of what essentially is an international state crime con committed by next door neighbor. Not last year, not, uh, you know, 2017, when the Rohingya issues hit the headlines, but this is been going on, you know, according to my own research and yours, um, essentially for the last 40 years. And uh, I uh, visited uh, your capital, uh, Dhaka, as, the, uh, as a guest of the uh, uh, previous foreign minister. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, he was explaining, he was the point person for the uh, MOFA, Bangladeshi Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, to negotiate bilateral uh, repatriation accord with uh, uh, the Burmese military. Uh, at the time, the military was represented by the head of intelligence, now uh, the ex-general Kenyon, and the uh, previous um, you know, foreign minister uh, from Bangladesh, who was um, uh, at the head, ta uh, head seat at the table, told me that the Burmese general was, in fact, uh, you know, falling asleep during the uh, um, negotiations. So that was, you know, he was referring to 1992-93 repatriation negotiations. And, uh, you know, you were pointing out that the Bangladesh should have taken this issue up with the um, international community, so-called, um, particularly the UN and all the global justice mechanism. But Bangladesh has chosen uh, to basically, in my view, to comply with the Burmese military's demand that they the victims be not referred to by their own recognized name, Rohingya, but as the, you know, uh, forcibly displaced um, uh, people from Myanmar. And uh, you know, as you said, uh, you know, you specialized in international relations, that the uh, refugee laws and the conventions certainly have a category for precisely the type of refugees that Rohingyas are, who fled their country uh, away from war, persecution, and genocide. Um, can you explain why Bangladesh is reluctant to call the Rohingyas 
by their legal categorical name refugee? And why do you think Bangladesh is complying um, with the Burmese military's insistence or Aung San Suu Kyi's insistence that um, these peoples be not referred to as Rohingya? That in and of itself is a violation of the Rohingya's international right to self-identify. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was this misplaced priority. And, uh, and this is when I say this, this is not only the government that is in power, the opposition party when that was in power as well, they always thought that we will engage with the Burmese, you know, you know be good neighbors and you know, try to sort of engage with the, 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 the connectivity program, investment, border trade, you know, a, a look east was the policy that, 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 that was being touted at the time. And uh, uh, constructive engagement, those were the buzzwords. And they felt, okay, this is an irritant, you know, Rohingya issue is an irritant in this bilateral relations. And once we are able to engage them, you know, in that front, on, on the bigger front, we'll be able to persuade them to, you know, on, on this particular issue. But I'm afraid the Burmese were just playing a mind game. You know, while we did that, neither did the investment came nor the connectivity took off. You know, but in the process, Burmese got a decade or more time, a few decade time, to expel uh, as many numbers of Rohingyas as possible. So they took advantage of this negotiation, of this goodwill, sort of goodwill, uh, good neighborly sort of approach of Bangladesh. And in a way, they knew it very well. In fact, they were playing on the good neighborly attitude and they treated as weakness. You know, and that is what uh, the, our policymakers fail to appreciate and fail to understand, despite the fact that tens of thousands of uh, Rohingyas uh, had, had come by then and never cared to know, you know why these people had come. So, so in a way, uh, this was a misplaced prior priority. And the sweet words that, that came from Rangoon, uh, uh, you know, that, that was uh, sort of accepted. And as I'm given to understand that even when Aung San Suu Kyi took over, she made a promise to you know, look into this matter. And again, that was again, essentially what we see now was buying time. Uh, so as a result, Burmese faulted, but in the process, Bangladesh was cheated. And to some extent, because it, it, it failed to see that it was a long drawn you know, ploy of the Burmese to manipulate the good, good neighborly attitude of Bangladesh. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi, Myanmar's, uh, you know, essentially uh, the, you know, highest civilian leader uh, the, the, with the, um, uh, holding the office of a, a state councillor, which is, uh, you know, above the president. So, but, so basically she is the uh, de facto uh, head of state, uh, you know, uh, the, except that she doesn't control the security um, sector, the you know, home affairs and uh, armed forces, border guards and whatnot. But nonetheless, like uh, she runs the ship um, the, quite tightly, uh, you know, all the uh, non-security sectors are under her direct control. She is also the parliamentary leader of the, uh, you know, the majority uh, uh, National League for Democracy in the parliament. So, but my understanding uh, through different sources uh, that um, that I consider to be 100% reliable is that when she met with um, the Prime Minister, um, Her Excellency um, Sheikh Hasina, she held uh, um, Sheikh Hasina's hand. Uh, you know, these are two two 
two women who rose to power uh, and, and have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, two national heroes, uh, the, you know, in, of Bangladesh and Burma, uh, Aung San and Mujiburaman. Uh, and so they, they have something in common. They went through the pain and the suffering, the loss of the, their respective fathers. And Suchi held um, your prime minister's hand and said, you know, I will look into this matter. Please give me time. Yeah, that must have been, uh, you know, I don't know, five, five years ago. Yeah? But this issue Aung San Suu Kyi had known, you know, since 2012, when uh, the, the first two bouts of uh, uh, mass and organized uh, violence took place uh, in Rakhine State, and, and uh, the Rohingyas were the primary uh, bearers of um, uh, violence. Um, how much time do you think Bangladesh has given to the neighboring, you know, both civilian and military leaders? Because I understand. There's also a military to military intelligence and border security cooperation or collaboration between the two armed forces. So there's, there are a lot of interface between these, uh, you know, our, our two countries, we're neighbors, yeah. Um, but apparently the Burmese are, you know, as you said, they're simply deceiving the Bangladeshi counterpart. And, and Bangladesh doesn't seem to have put its foot down on this issue. You know, because I think this is shocking because uh, Bangladesh is no ordinary country. It was born out of uh, essentially a genocidal war uh, by West Pakistan against the Bengali-speaking Bengali, Bengali people in East, East Bengal or East Pakistan. And, uh, you know, you lost or like about 10 million um, the refugees fled, um, you know, across into India in 1971 until the um, uh, Indian armed forces under India Gandhi um, intervened and uh, with the, um, uh, in solidarity with the uh, liberation fighters. What are the things that explain, um, you know, the psychologically that that makes it so difficult for the Bangladeshi leadership that, you know, the, the Rohingyas need more concrete material political support to gain their homeland. You know, whereas in fact, Bangladesh itself had received such concrete and decisive help from, uh, um, uh, from India. Yeah, I mean, this, this is something it's baffling. I mean, uh, because as you said, for a long period of time, the deceit went on. And uh, not only the political leadership, it's the, it's the armed forces and others, they have all their own sort of networks to assess that what, is, what lies in our own national interest. And as they say, normally states are guided by their national interest. So I really don't see uh, what, what was it that impelled our policymakers, you know, not to appreciate that fact that where, where lies, where does it lie in our national interest? What we, common people, you know, us, the academics, the researchers, and many the common, common people, that we, we, we felt that, you know, the Rohingyas needed to go back home. The Burmese were not, are not creating conditions for them to return. You know, I'm talking about pre-2017 situation, you know, and Bangladesh was not doing enough, you know, certainly not mobilizing international public opinion. No feather, any, not even a single feather was ruffled, you know, in, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, making people aware that this is what is happening. Uh, so, as, as a, so th this is baffling. And I guess 
they, 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 they perhaps they thought, you know, uh, again, they had this misplaced uh, sort of uh, trust that they can engage with the Burmese, you know, and uh, on economic sort of matters, trade, investment, and other matters, uh, connectivity. And then they would be sort of, uh, they, they will push them in, in, in this particular front. Uh, that, that was not to be. So, so in a way, I'm as lost as you are. That why why this is the case. And and having said that, I think now we are the we we are paying the price for it. We are paying the price for it. That uh, uh, we have to host this large, uh, not uh, we, in the in the, the resource that we it's a densely populated area, relatively poor area where these people are hosted. There is you know initial the uh, sort of approach. Of hospitality has run was running dry. You know there is this low host population versus refugees. So there many things are coming into play. And as resources dwindle, as foreign support you know uh, comes in, uh, and new crisis develops, and particularly COVID situation. Uh, I don't know what lies uh, ahead. So these things uh, you know I think it was rather short sighted uh, in, in the subsequent you know government's uh, policy making. Uh, when they was dealing with Burma, uh, that 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 much I can surely say. Yeah, um, obviously, um, you know, you have shown um, you know the, the tremendous uh, goodwill and also um, empathy and com compassion um, to to the uh, refugee community. Um, this is you know above and beyond the call of your professional responsibility as a researcher to to go and research. Uh, you know uh, the communities in distress or in in uh, you know a forced migration situation. Um, are there any things uh, personal? You know, uh, as a Bengali, um, you know, growing up uh, during the civil war, or you know, or, or um, the, the things in your life that you know basically trigger that kind of humanistic and um, kind response, not simply approaching as just another research project or topic, you know, uh, that we see in many uh, the research institutions that, uh, you know, once once you finish the uh, grant cycle, you, you know, uh, you fold the uh, folders and then you move on to something else. But you have been, um, you know, just showing a great deal of concern and, and have been like you're relentlessly pushing for a particular type of helpful narrative and, uh, you know, research findings. You know, as far as uh, I can recall, and uh, can you can you tell us um, what makes you tick on this issue? Well, I, I would say, yeah. Um, I mean, in 1970, soon after the war, in the, I mean, liberation war, uh, it was. How old were you, by the way, at the time? Oh, I, at, at the time, I, I just you know sort of I was entering the university. It was at that time, the first year and all that. So I would say 18, 19. Or, and um, I, I was I was uh, in an old town near the national prison, the the biggest prison in the country. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know why I went around that particular area, and uh, I saw prison vans. You know, they were taking people from the Bihari camps. You know, they were shifting them into the prison, and people were jeering against. You know, they were you know taunting people who were there. You know, wretched Bihari members of the Bihari community, you know, throwing stones at them, you know, and I somewhat it's and you know and the the the, the, the language, the hatred, 
These who, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Who 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 was doing the uh, imprisonment? The the, the, Bengal, the, 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 the the mainstream Bengalis, you know, who had just won the liberation war. I see. And, it's 1971. Yeah, isn't it? Post 19, immediate post 1971. Yeah. And here was this, you know, group of people uh, uh, who were alleged, as, as a section of them were alleged to have, you know, collaborated with the Pakistan army. You know, mind you, a section of them as a section of Bengalis also collaborated with Pakistan army. You know, so they're so, given like a collective punishment as it were. That's and, I mean, at that particular moment, to be fair to the government at the time, you know, for their own safety, they were being taken from the informal camps, you know, uh, from their residence to, 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 to the prison, you know, so that their safety is ensured custody, you know, which I believe that maybe at that particular point of time, perhaps was the right thing to do. Otherwise the mob's hatred would go and maybe burn their things. So, so that was the more of a protective, genuine protective sort of measure. But while being, being taken, you know, these people were hurled with abuse, you know, stones and all that. And that really pained me a lot. I said, you know, maybe there were, there were you know, there, there were criminals within this particular community, but everyone doesn't, you know, women, children, what, what do they have to do with that? So that was the beginning of, the feeling of otherness, you know, I could see with my own eyes, you know, the feeling of otherness. And at the end of the, uh, my, the reasoning perhaps was our own nationalism based around Bengali language. And these people spoke Urdu and they came to Bangladesh in East Pakistan at the time, you know, and this was their land, you know, their land of asylum, their land to seek, you know, justice, their land. But, but suddenly in 1971, they found when the, when the Bengali nationalistic movement began to take shape. You know, many of them were confused. You know, they came to as Muslim being the identity, now Bengali language, which they don't speak. So they could not really connect. You know, some, I mean, means, but there were also people of that community who supported Bengali nationalist movement as well, even in 1952, when that was, you know, germinating. So, so there was all these things, some finer things that was taking place. And so that was my, the beginning for me to, look into issue of, and then they were being branded as Pakistanis. And here also how international community fails a community. In ICRC took charge of these group of people. And when they were winding up their operations, you know, perhaps in 1974, they gave them a forms to fill the, the, the Biharis in different camps. And in that said, what would be your option to go to Pakistan, stay here or go to India? And these people obviously felt, you know, they were, un, this was an uninformed choice that they were making. And they said, you know, we'd like to go to Pakistan, you know, most of them, you know, and as a result, they're being branded as Pakistanis, you know, so here we are, you know, it's, it's by default, they became Pakistanis, stranded Pakistanis, uh, a leadership of their group who became camp leaders, you know, swindling others, you know, and, and uh, so they were the ones, you know, who all themselves as stranded Pakistanis rehabilitation movement. And Pakistan also played the game, except for Benazir Bhutto. You know, all Pakistani prime ministers said, we will bring them back to Pakistan. You know, so as a result, these people could not develop their roots here. Their identity became much more, you know, split. And young people suffered from, you know, and they were living in camps, mind you. Many of them at, time, at one time, pre-71, owned properties and all that. So these people were paupers. You know, they were living at the mercy of, you know, essentially, and they fended for themselves, you know, uh, in, in, in a very dire sort of circumstances. 
and they, sorry, they they had um, political citizen rights and um, basic. No, that that that's where we came. I mean, that's where that that was another young long long drawn struggle. You know, they did not have that. They were perceived to be Pakistanis. They were perceived Pakistanis, and uh, as, as a result, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 not even no support were given to them. Initially, some rounds of, you know, uh, what you call uh, rationing was done, given, you know, a, a World Food Program and others, you know, obviously with Bangladesh government's, you know, uh, consent, they, they did that. But that also ran out in a few years. So they did not have any support whatsoever. The, the, the biggest and best NGOs of the world, you know, who, who go to every nook and corner to find poor people, to provide them with microcredit, you know, and may provide many other services. Those were NGOs were never to be seen helping these people. And I personally went to different organizations, including bilateral donors, asking them to develop their, you know, to extend, you know, support to this group of people, you know, and, and you know, ask the NGOs whom, whom they fund to develop programs. And their response was, you know, this is a politically very sensitive issue, you know, so therefore we cannot ask. And mind you, these were the people, you know, if you want a proper attainment of Millennium Development Goal at the time, SDGs now, and leave no one behind, then obviously children need to be educated, health services need to be provided, you know, human development needs to take place. But none of the NGOs, nor the state, you know, ever bothered. And it was only in 2003, that again, we were involved in that litigation process. Uh, they, they asked for the citizenship. And finally in 2008 came another verdict where unequivocally the court said, these people never lost to, uh, to their Bangladeshi, never forfeited their Bangladeshi citizenship. By expressing to go to another country does not by itself make them lose their citizenship. So if that were the case, then most of the Bangladeshis would have lost their citizenship by now because it was during USDB lottery, you know, many <laughs> middle class and upper middle class, they were, they, many of them apply to get, you know, US citizenship or, you know, whatever the right. research category is. So that was reaffirmed by the court in 2008. And I was in the court when the judgment was, we thought it was end of everything and now things will improve. Unfortunately, things did not improve. And when the voter registration started taking place, you know, during 2007, 8 you know, at that time, the camp people were left behind. And after the judgment, we went to the chief election commissioner along with, I was the only Bengali in the five member delegation. We negotiated with the chief election commissioner who was in charge of enrolling the voters and said that these people, court has declared that these people are Bangladeshis as much as I am, and therefore you should enroll them. And finally, their enrollment took place. So on paper, they, that has, it has been vindicated their Bangladeshis, but still there has been no integration, real integration effort, no support. So that must be my beginning to get involved with stateless people and people without you know, proper documentation and identity. And with the refugees, you know, that took place. And initially I was involved in even HCR's campaign for a national law for refugees and also have a regional framework for national refugees. And to my disappointment, I think they all go by flavor of the month. You know, uh, whoever is interested in the protection office there in Geneva, push one of or two of these items. 
And when the personnel change, you know, their priorities change. So for the last 10, 15 years, we have not had any sort of push by the UNHCR or any effort to engage with the government that we should have a refugee law. We should have, you know, that kind of, you know, procedure in place where an asylum seeker can, it's all very ad hoc. And, you know, given the fact that we are one of the largest, you know, receiving countries. So that's how, you know, in a, it's a long drawn response to your query. How, how come I got involved, you know, with persons, with people of these communities? And mind you, it's not me who are doing it. It's some of my colleagues, my former students, my, my colleagues uh, who, are, who have been part of that journey. And we teamed up uh, with, uh, you know, uh, you know, with our, my colleagues in other department and sent up, set, set up this refugee and migratory movements research unit 25 years ago. And, you know, so it's, it's been a long journey. And we have been the champions for the cause of Rohingya refugees here. We have been champions for the cause of the Bihari stateless people. And we feel that this is something not, a, this is our charity or this is something we are doing them a favor. You know, you know, it makes, it, it is my as much a responsibility, you know, it, 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 I, as a human being, it's part of my duty. And that's what we, we try to tell others. And, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of good, well-meaning people who would like to do it, but there's a lot of misinformation. Even, you know, very top level government functionaries have very little understanding of international law, very little understanding of citizenship. You know, as a result, still, you know, after the 15, 20 years after the High Court judgment, you know, in the, in the floor of parliament, one of the foreign ministers whom you know are very, at, one, at, the, at the time, you know, or prior ministers. And she, she, when it, the statement was made that Pakistan should take back, you know, these people. Then we wrote a note to the minister saying that, Madam, you know, you please, uh, uh, that this was the court verdict. I mean, whom do you mean by stranded Pakistani? Could you please explain to us? You know, and I would, if you had meant this group, you know, uh, I guess you are, we, we are wrong in this place, you know, in, in, in identifying them. So that has been, I don't claim that that letter has ever reached them, but at least there was this protest was there. It was registered. Right. So that kind of effort, you know, we are trying to put in and we have quite a few colleagues who are geared to it. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, you know, I, I know you well, and I would consider you, um, you know, um, you know, compassionate, and I would even say patriotic, um, uh, a Bengali uh, a national academic, intellectual writer, activist, advocate. Um, but, uh, but your brand of, uh, you know, patriotism, that involves uh, exercising your sense of responsibility, conscience, uh, the compassion for those who are not citizens or who are in distress um, have not been well received uh, by the uh, you know the authorities and and uh, you're leading you know uh, the premier human rights watchdog you know defending the rights of different individuals as well as communities you know uh, irrespective of their legal standing within the Bangladeshi state uh, structure. Can you tell us about the, um, the, the, the organization that you lead, um, um, Odika? What does it mean? And uh, you know, what are the primary uh, functions or, or objectives of Odika? 
Yeah, I mean, Udhikar is a human rights organization. And uh, having said that, I, I, I do acknowledge there are many other human rights organizations in the country, you know, who do a lot of useful work. But I think the, the, the distinction between them and us is uh, we more focus on civil and political rights. And with the state becoming more and more uh, powerful, uh, with the with, with shrinking democratic space, with receding free, uh, freedom of expression and freedom of the press and freedom of assembly, uh, our task is becoming more and more difficult. And uh, so as a result, I don't blame people who shy away from, you know, do that because we cannot be judges of the circumstances that they are in. But certainly, uh, it, it, it makes it, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, what you call commitment to, to stand up for, for, for rights, particularly in a situation when state apparatuses have become pretty sort of uh, uh, pretty strong, you know, to say the least. And when you mean, you mean, you mean like uh, repressive and nasty? Yes, yes, coercive apparatuses of the, uh, apparatuses of the state, you know, have become uh, much more uh, sort of powerful and uh, uh, not necessarily uh, abiding by the uh, rule of law, uh, where extrajudicial killings are taking place, where involuntary disappearances are taking place. And uh, having said that, you know, um, uh, what, I mean, the fact that it's taking place, you know, it, it, it bothers us, but the even stark reality is, uh, uh, investigations are not taking place. So that by default makes us believe you know, and not only us, you know, members in the international human rights organizations, that maybe there is a link between state apparatuses and these, you know, uh, gross violation of human rights. Uh, and that's why the investigations are not taking place. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is this group called Maya Dat, you know, Call of Mothers, you know, and these are the people, you know, who lost their sons due to involuntary disappearances or brothers. You know, and, uh, you know, every year uh, we, we meet uh, with this group uh, every, every, uh, quite on quite a few occasions. And when we look at the, 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 the hope that they still retain, because there has not been any closure for them. You know, they have not seen the bodies. You know, so they, 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 they and mind you, you know, there have been instances after months, you know, um, in some instances after years, people have come back. So the, the, the hope sort of lingers on. And it takes huge toll on the family psychological toll. And this is what make them even more committed to the cause that this is something when Bangladesh was created on the ideals of freedom, on the ideals of freedom of speech, you know, that these things will not no longer be there. It will be gone with the days with Pakistan. This thing will also go because they, that represented, you know, days where rights were violated. But in, in, in today's Bangladesh, you know, as many more than 40 years after independence, when you we have to struggle for these rights, you know, then certainly it pains me. And when we see that, you know, the, the, the what you call the number is even our own ranks, it is shrinking because the agencies are becoming more powerful. The political leadership, you know, do not want to sort of uh, uh, give us as much protection as one, one would expect. And what Odikar is a registered organization, you know, but its registration has not been renewed. So we, we are in a state of limbo. All our approved funds from the NGO Affairs Bureau, you know, that was approved once, that was not released. And EU funds, 
on 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 promotion you know on on torture you know convention which the government has ratified you know government has ratified it was supplementing the work on the of the government but that was stopped so that those kind of work you know uh, it is it is it is difficult but at this at the same time we genuinely believe this country is as much ours as as it is anyone else's and we have the same uh, having been born you know in a privileged somewhat relatively privileged we owe it to the community that we should say the things that we should say we should write the things that we should write you know as much as possible and yeah you so um you you meant you mentioned that what distinguishes odika and its mission is your bold uh, concentration or attention to uh, political and civil rights that uh, you know uh, make the uh, the state in bangladesh quite uncomfortable because uh, you know i see a parallel between um, the southeast asian states cluster around this association of southeast asian nations you know they adopted this uh, so called um, asean charter uh, asean human rights charter and then downplay the civil and political rights right and uh, you know the, under which um, torture is is uh, banned yeah and uh, um, and then also you mentioned about the the shift in terms of who controls the state the political state from the repressive urdu speaking uh, west pakistani to to fellow uh, bengali speaking bengalis yeah and it, it, it the way you describe it um, I, I believe it's very accurate um you said that from my own burmese experience similar thing like you know we were under the um, british colonial rule and then later we were um, you know under short japanese fascist occupation and then you know a short period of parliamentary civilian democracy rule in burma and then like military rule now the nominally democratic era the essence the mode of operation and uh, practices by the state and agencies and regulatory bodies security sectors have not changed across south asia and southeast asia citizens and people the vast majority of us uh, you know uh, the commoners we suffer you know practically similar set of repression you know without people are tried without due process uh, people are arrested without any proper warrant uh, judiciaries are under the uh, tight control of executive the parliamentary elections are rigged uh, the spoils are split and the uh, national armies became tools of politicians or political parties and, and vice versa um the, the, can you care to elaborate on the type of um you know uh violations of civil and political rights uh that are committed by essentially state agency because you don't have an insurgency as such you know the way the burmese um, uh, uh state uh, will will have as an excuse and you know look you know, the the, uh, the there are 20 plus the armed resistance groups um, organized along ethnicities in burma so the burmese state always use it as a, a, a um, as an excuse to say that you know we have to be strong militarily because otherwise like you know the, the so-called insurgents are going to 
uh, do X, Y, Z. But the Bangladesh is a clear case, clear cut case of, uh, a, a, you know, basically a peaceful country. There are no, no national security threat coming from people. Why is Bangladeshi state behaving the way it is towards its own citizens? I guess the war on terrorism, you know, has given the state a lot of excuse uh, to uh, sort of uh, um, arm itself, uh, you know, flex its muscle, have a plethora of uh, laws and regulations in place, you know, uh, that, has, that, that has allowed it to sort of encroach on citizens' privacy. Uh, you know, and a whole range of laws were came into had, had come, come into effect, uh, and the holy artisan incident has essentially bolstered bolstered the the uh, what you call the justification that we have to be alert. You know, so in a way, uh, to and, and and these these excuses are pretty smartly played out. You know that we are fighting a a force Islamic militancy and that kind of thing. You know, and all these were done, you know, in the in the name of national security, and uh, and also the, the irony of it is, you know, those who are champions of the spirit of war of liberation, you know, which essentially my understanding is, you know, justice, you know, poverty-free Bangladesh, you know, freedom of expression that I should be able to exercise as citizens. So, so in in a way, the the, the regime. Uh, that champions that slogan, the spirit of war of liberation, is essentially sort of uh, sort of uh, working against those spirit. In, 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 and that's what the irony of the whole thing is, you know. And there is no earthly reason for a political leadership, which is uh, which has been initially mandated some years ago, you know, to rule the country with popular mandate. I'm not saying this election, you know, prior to that. You know that, that they had to really depend on security forces to rule, so they really have to, you know, uh, emasculate the judiciary, the parliament become becoming a rubber stamping institution. So it's 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 it's, uh, it's very very unfortunate that that's the reality of, of 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 the time. And in the process, we the citizens are being transformed from from citizens to subjects. We are expected to follow diktats rather than you know, guided by the rules and regulations. You know, we are expected to sort of revere individuals without questioning you know, without, you know, and express our loyalty to a particular ideology, to a particular established law. You know, like, like we have a law whereby you cannot question some of the fundamentals, you know, uh, history of liberation, you know, there is certain narrative and you cannot go beyond that. So as an academic, as a researcher, as a, as a person with an inquisitive mind, you know, and as a person who believes in facts, and one who also believes what is fact today may not remain fact tomorrow, could be you know, proven to be wrong. So, but by law, I cannot question that. So that's what that kind of surreal state that we are particularly at that moment, at the moment is. And this, this is certainly a very difficult time, that when people are not allowed to question, when people are not allowed to um, be, have critical views and even sarcasm. You know, we have a draconian Digital Security Act in place, and under which anything and everything that you do could be deemed as anti-state. You know, could be deemed as that you are spoiling someone else's image. You know, as 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 nebulous concepts as that. So based on that, you know, you you can be taken, you can be arrested. 
and non-bailable offenses that you would be you would be committed. You know, and, and and therefore it's a state of fear that people people are in. And this is certainly not the Bangladesh that our father of the nation hoped for. You know, this this has been far far from the project that in his book what he has written. You know, when he was struggling against Pakistani state. So if I if I would like to be true to his ideals, certainly I have to I have all the right to say what is present day Bangladesh has deviated a great deal from that the struggle that, for which he laid laid his life subsequently. You know, then then what it is today. Yeah, let me let me pick up on the um, you know the, the something that you mentioned. Um, you know, which which I think is the um, uh, the the heart of. Uh, uh, the struggles and the issue, which is the, the notion of citizenship as opposed to subjects. You know, like I also came from um, a country where politics is, um, uh, you know, framed or disclosed within the framework of, you know, uh, the, the parents and children. You know, Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's father is presented to to us as the father of the army, the father of the founding father of modern Burma, and she is the mother of the people. Right? So, in my, you know, speaking as a, 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 a Democrat and a dissident and uh, from Burma, um, I I find this, um, you know, pair, if if we present our politicians, however brilliant and uh, emancipatory and revolutionary their politics might have been. If we use the um, parents' analogy, father or mother of the nation, a mother of humanity, father of the nation, you know, like both of our countries use these metaphors. So, you know, by logical conclusion, if we are looking at our political leaders as parents, then we are children. Children in Asian context are essentially obey and and shut up and follow the uh, parental advice or instructions yeah but that to me is the antithesis of what the notion of citizenship entails citizenship we may have siblings we may but we may split in terms of who we want to vote as our representative voices we may disagree with our parents or grandparents or even wives or husbands we say, I'm going to vote for this individual. You exercise your reason and judgment and go with your passion. And so th this is like, you know, the whole um, metaphor of politicians and leaders and parents undermines the, the growth of a so society as a democratic society and eventually undermines the growth of a state that will respect the civil and political rights. Uh, do you see um, the, um, similar problems in your um, in your national yeah, I, context? I would, I, would, I would entirely say that that has been the case here as well, and uh, you know, so that has that has been a major major problem. Um, the political leadership. I'm not only saying the current leader, even previously. I mean, they are used to in a dispensation where you know. In, in a way, they, they feel they're above the rest, rest of us. You know, the, 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 and, and as a result, you know, the, the loyalty, uh, unquestioned subservience, I would say, you know, even in, in the, the, the way you address them 
the way you sort of you, you refer to them. So those things are somewhat expected that you are to follow those. And even the way you address them, that, that itself is, is again- Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, Professor Abra, uh, for interrupting. If they see themselves above the society as a standalone clique or class, you know, entitled or destined to lord over the rest of the society, then what's the difference between them and the white man's rule? The white man had his own, his own, you know, white only Jim Connor clubs. Mm -hmm. white only coaches what is the difference between you know our governments and their leaders today in bangladesh and burma and the raj that ruled india for over 200 years what's the difference name and skin color yeah i mean that's a, that's i mean that's what it is i mean having reached a, st a stage in my life, you know, maybe 10, 15 years at best, if I have, if I can survive the COVID, you know, uh, you really feel frustrated that this is not the kind of Bangladesh when we were youth, when we sort of paraded through the streets, expressing solidarity with peoples of Azania, with peoples of Namibia, with people of South Africa, you know, uh, we thought we would, you know, with people of Vietnam, we thought we'll all make the, make a better world. But it turns out, in most of these instances, you know, uh, we, we, we still, it has become a far cry, you know, for, from what we anticipated. In our own land, we have, we have somewhat become aliens. You know, we cannot exercise the rights that we are meant to be. We are, I mean, the irony of it is, the, the, one of the top most economists of this country, very respected person, you know, so two, two, three years ago at a seminar, and who essentially was instrumental in drafting, you know, in help drafting the famous six-point program of, of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the father of the nation, when the Bengali struggle was struggling in his Pakistan. You know, and he was saying that during Pakistan period, we used to write something and put it to the paper, and we were excited next day that we have achieved something in the, you know, against the government we have written. Nowadays, after I write something, if I write at all, I keep it for seven days. I give it to my wife to read, and only after she, and she's an academic of international standing. So after she gives the nod, then I put it to the press. And that's where the, that speaks volume of state of freedom of expression in Bangladesh is today. You know, and, and, and that's something, you know, we, we hate that we are going through this time, but at the end of the day, we feel that, you know, we the people will prevail and we will be able to establish the long cherished desire of, of, of the common masses, you know, so that the, the, the Bangladesh that they want, the Bangladesh that bids on justice, Bangladesh which talks of equity, Bangladesh which talks of freedom, that we will be able to establish that. And it is on that spirit, some of us, we have not been bought off by the state as of now, you know, and not, not perhaps we are not worth buying off at all in, in the first place. And uh, uh, so we differ on, on things. Unfortunately, many of my own peers, you know, in, in the academia, in the legal establishment, in, in, in civil administration, you know, in all other sectors, in, in journalism, you know, they have sold their souls. And that has been the biggest boon for the ruling establishment, that 
they, they, you know, it, it, they have been able to, you know, garner their support. But at the end of the day, you know, they all dry out. It is the people who matter and certainly people who establish for their rights and for their entitlements. Yeah, on, 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 on the question of people, you've got millions of uh, Bengalis uh, sending back remittances, you know, uh, the, to the tunes of billions, I believe. And, uh, you know, I think- like, billion dollars. Yes, yeah, yeah, so you know, then like, you've got the garment sector, which is one of the world's leading uh, manufacturing sectors in the world, yeah? Uh, the, the located in Bangladesh. Can you, uh, you know, this is, a, 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 you know, one of the last two questions. Can you comment on the, um, the type of uh, obstacles and perils that, and, and dangers that um, uh, Bengali migrant workers, you know, either in transit uh, through migration to, uh, you know, greener pastures uh, in the Middle East or other places, or like, you know, their working conditions in those places. And, and then finally, um, uh, on, on the rights of um, uh, basically major national income earners, laborers working in, uh, you know, essentially sweatshops in Bangladesh, uh, thousands of uh, factories. Can you catch a comment on these two issues, migrant workers, their difficulties, and the, uh, the rights or lack thereof uh, Bangladeshi workers within Bangladesh. No, I mean these are these are important sectors, you know, for the economy. And if there are two major pillars of Bangladesh's economy, I mean the, the ones that you have stated, you know, they, these are the two two major pillars. Unfortunately, again, you know, I mean we see that I mean Rana Plaza incident triggered quite a bit of reform in that particular sector. Uh, but certainly, what the workers deserve from the consumer, I mean, from, from the products, the end products that they, that they produce is, is, is pitiable amount. And bulk of it is taken up uh, by, by others, you know, in, in the, and when negotiations take place between buyers and the, and the, and the manufacturers, you know, the, the one sector that suffers is, is, is the labor because they don't have a voice in, the, in that negotiation. So when the costs are, when the, when the buyers pay less cost, you know, all other costs remain the same except for the for the for the workers. So in a way, what we see is, you know, uh, the the government. I mean, when we say that we are, you know, we are thriving as a nation. We are model for development. We have set a, a, a standard for many other, and quite rightly, you know, that that is that is that is true. So the 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 the, 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 the government has all the right reasons to claim that economy is on the track. But is it what, what should be end in itself? No, it is what the life for the people. So I think in that respect, the uh, it's general condition, the wage condition is certainly far from satisfactory. The If we compare the wages, uh, the minimum wage that was there and the purchasing power parity, if, that, if you take that into account, certainly they're in a much worse off right now. So these are, although the, although the you know, their, their wages may have gone up, but the ability to buy, you know, uh, uh, consumer items, food items, services, you know, has, has, has really shrunk. So that is the reality on the, on the domestic workers front. And added to that is, you know, the labor sector, there are restrictions on uh, trade union activities, particularly in the specialized economic zones, you know, that are for export sector. So there, there, there are major issues there. 
uh, at the same time with regard to migrant workers as well. I think essentially the state has, you know, despite a plethora of laws, regulations, and institutions that we also help them frame, you know, through our, you know, sort of active uh, sort of collaboration with the government, drafted the law, uh, sort of, uh, sort of encouraged them to sign the 1990 UN Convention on Migrant Workers and a whole range of things that, that this is not the right forum to speak. But certainly we had a civil society's fair contribution in, in, in the process. But, you know, after working for, again, 25 years in this sector, we feel that essentially the state is interested in drawing remittances from them. And this COVID-19 has, has really brought to the, uh, to the fore that, you know, uh, that protection for, of workers still has not, remained, has not gone up high in the, uh, on the agenda. Soon after the thing, we saw the government coming up with a range of incentive packages to the private sector, particularly governments manufacturers. And I'm, I'm saying that, you know, to the government manufacturers, you know, in the name of supporting paying the workers wages, they extracted sort of advantages from the government, but that was not passed on. Or it has not, it has been alleged that that has not been passed on to the workers. Likewise, you know, similarly has not taken place to look after the migrant workers who are coming empty handed from overseas. And uh, we are now, and there are many millions of dollars, if not billions of lost remittances. Workers are being terminated arbitrarily, you know, while they have valid visas and they have been shipped back home. As soon as the fights resume, you will see tens of thousands millions of workers coming back, you know, and many of them would, be, would have lost wages. And just the other day, I wrote a piece, you know, saying that great wage robbery, because, you know, these workers have been, been sent pauperized, have been penniless, and they are being sent. And state is not standing up for them and asking those states where, I mean, it has, it has asked for six months salary, but it has not been doing enough, the one, as much as we want. So, so again, you know, at a critical time, the, what you call the, the support and, and, and the protection that they deserve has, has, not, has been wanting. And uh, we, we still hope that, you know, that, that they would find place and proper mechanism should be in place so that they are, if they have returned, they are returned in dignity, their entitled wages are, are given. When situations improve, they should be taken back to, the, to those countries, you know, and, 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 the, and in doing so, they should not deal with the state bilaterally because if you're dealing with labor receiving countries bilaterally, then they play one against the other. So there are the, all these fancy consultative various processes, you know, they call it uh, regional processes, like Abu Dhabi dialogue, Colombo process. So but that's, that, 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 that's not gaining traction. So these are some of the things that we are highlighting through our work, you know, and as you rightly said, you know, they were used as, as, as remittance, you know, sort of earners, but when that has, you know, fallen from the thing, they are not being taken care of as much. So that we need their champions, and this is something we, the civil society in, in South Asia, you know, we are trying to sort of build up and you know, uh, sort of encourage our state or push our state so that they take a pro-migrant sort of position. Yeah. Uh, Professor Abra, we have reached our one-hour mark, but you've been remarkably um, honourable in your work and in your personal life, particularly as someone who has a specialized international relations that usually as a former dean of a Harvard um, Kennedy School Center, you know, the international relations 
a scholar ought to aim to become like Henry Kissinger. You know, Kissinger <laughs> to him not a good, not a good was the, the standard bearer or the international relations expert should be operating within the uh, corridors of power. And uh, you have uh, completely uh, walked, I mean, worked in, walked in the other direction and uh, you identify with, the, uh, you know, some of the most uh, downtrodden and oppressed people on earth. And, and therefore, we have uh, uh, appointed you citizen ambassador for the Rohingya. Thank you. And uh, I take it as an honor, and I think it's much more important to 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 represent you know, the the most persecuted minority of the world than you know representing the state, you know, which pretty dubious credentials. You know, so I would prefer the, the one that I've got. Yeah, well, I think that we will all say the honor then is mutual. And, and thank you very much. And um, we you. will release it um, uh, in the next couple of days. Okay, bye, bye for now. Have a good evening. Same to you. Bye.